word there with them, and that was an enjoyable time as well as we looked into the Song of Solomon during that period of time, and that was, a, that was delightful. I, I enjoyed that book so very much, and it was just fun to be able to look into it once again. It's, it's a pleasure for us this weekend to have our daughter and our oldest son-in-law, I'm son-in-law, oldest grandson with us. <laughs> he doesn't look old enough to be my son-in-law, that's for sure. Let it say it's been fun to have them with us over the weekend. In fact, while, while the ladies were up at the conference yesterday where Kim was speaking, Tyler and I had the opportunity, which, and the, uh, the conference evidently was really well attended. It was like 150, 160 women and, and uh, young adults that were there, and that was a wonderful, wonderful time. And so we're just so thankful to see the Lord working in, in, uh, in the missionary, uh, in the hearts of men and women concerning missions. That's not always true across this country. And so it's good to see that being stimulated again here in the New England area. Uh, but Tyler and I had the whole day yesterday together, so we just went up to Old Sturbridge Village and walked around for six hours, you know, and he, he just loves that kind of stuff, so he loves the history, and so we were able to go around and, and uh, enjoy six hours walking around Sturbridge. Of course, that means Grandpa's feet are a little sore still this morning, his legs are aching a little bit, but that's all right. We, we really did enjoy a real good time together. We're going to begin this morning by reading a portion in Colossians. Now, the subject of the title that I've given, The Central Purpose of God for Humanity, is, uh, it sounds like a very broad subject. And the reason it sounds like a broad subject is because it's a broad subject. It encompasses a great deal. But in reality, it is something that you all will be very familiar with, I, I believe. You'll be all very familiar with it. As we look at it and we move forward, it, see, I've been going over this for several months in my own mind. I've been working through these thoughts over the course of several months now and, uh, for, and trying to systematize my thinking on this, on this one theme. And so we're still in that process, so you are a part of the thinking through of this process as I'm relating it to you, and so any input that you might have later on, if it's constructive, I'm happy to hear and to be able to uh, incorporate into my thinking. So we're going to begin here in Colossians chapter 1 with a wonderful description of our Lord Jesus Christ. And couched in this description, we are going to find one of the major doctrines of Scripture. One of the major doctrines of Scripture. And we'll see that as we proceed. Let's read together. We're going to read from chapter 1. And I suppose for context sake, we'll begin at verse 9. Paul, writing by inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, For this reason we also since the day we heard of it do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge and that is that full knowledge that comes from the spirit of god the full knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding now these things will become very important as we proceed over the course of the next week and whether we'll get there or not we'll just see as we go Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us 
to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for that for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this precious portion of his word. And shall we pray together? Father, we acknowledge as we always must do as we look into your word, the dependence that we must have upon thy spirit to show to us those things which you would have us to learn. And so, Father, as we present these truths this morning, we ask that your spirit might lead and direct our thinking both of the hearer and of the speaker. And Lord, we recognize the awesome responsibility it is to handle your word. And so we pray, Lord, that if anything is said that is not accurate, that those things would be quickly forgotten, but that the truths of your word, your spirit might drive home to our hearts, that we might live and enjoy your presence. And so, Father, we give you thanks and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, we want to notice the end of that portion where it talks about near the end of that portion where it talks about in verse 18, or I guess that was the very last portion that we read, that he may have the preeminence, that he may have the preeminence above all the philosophies, above all the understandings of men, Christ must always be and almost always remain in our minds and in our souls as preeminent. The Lord Himself has said, My glory I will not give to another. I will not share my glory with anyone. He is the one who has the preeminence. And it's interesting to note, when you read this portion through, you will find two verbs that are in close proximation to each other in this, in this sentence, that he may have the preeminence. Two verbs that are close proximation to each other. One is translated might have or may have. And that phrase, may have, that verb is in the subjunctive mood. And you remember in the past that we talked about the subjunctive mood being that mood of potentiality, that perhaps this will happen, maybe this will happen. It depends on the circumstances, whether certain circumstances are fulfilled. But also the subjunctives can be a result clause in the idea that this is the result of something that has happened. So here you have this subjunctive mood verb in the idea of may have or might have the preeminence. And then when you get to that second verb, which is close to that first verb, is which we translate have first place or have preeminence, it is a verb that's in the present tense and the active voice 
and it's a participle, so it's like a verbal noun. But it gives the impression that this preeminence is already his. He possesses preeminence, has possessed it, will continue to possess preeminence. It is not that we give him preeminence. It is because of all these things that they discuss concerning this one, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the result of all of those things, he has preeminence. Oftentimes we think, well, we should be giving preeminence to the Lord. Is that true? That is absolutely true. Because in our lives, we should be giving visible expression, especially as those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, giving visible expression to the reality that He has preeminence. He is and ought always to be first place. And it's not only in our lives, it should be in the lives of all. He should be first place. And so, right off, we see one of the principles that we will find later on as we go through our subject, that he has preeminence. He is the one who has preeminence. By right, by who he is, He has and possesses and will always possess preeminence. He always will be first place. And so our lives should be lived with the purpose and goal of making his preeminence a priority in the way in which we live. That this preeminence of Christ might be reflected in our lives because in reality he has first place. In him we find our bearings if you will in Christ we find our bearings we are alive in him and we are made complete in him and therefore our life should be lived if this is indeed a reality it should be lived in him and for his ultimate glory and for his ultimate honor would that be our desire as believers simple desire isn't it do we fulfill it regularly constantly and consistently that's right but that's the issue here we are those who are attempting to live out what is absolutely true we're attempting to live it out and we'll see this as we as we move further ahead lord willing then it goes on to say in this portion we'll we'll back up now It says, he has delivered us. Now we're getting into these qualifications, if you will, of why he has absolute preeminence. Why he has first place and should and ought to have that reflection of first place in our lives. Because he has delivered us. He has delivered us. And that word is an interesting word. Well, it's interesting to me. Maybe it won't be so much to you. But it has this idea of drawing something close to you. So it has this idea of drawing near to you. It's, you, uh, you can use the example of someone rescuing someone who's drowning. Here they are and they're drowning. And you reach down and you grab them and you draw them close to you. And in doing so, you've rescued them. You've taken them out of where they were and put them in the position of where you are. And you've delivered them. And he has delivered us. He has drawn us close to himself. He has delivered us. 
rescued us from what? The power of darkness. The power of darkness. And this idea of power here is, has this idea of the tyranny of darkness. He has rescued us and delivered us from the tyranny of darkness. And what is tyranny? Tyranny is when someone more powerful than you subjects you underneath their heel, as it were. And we were subjected under the heel of His satanic majesty for all the time until we came to Christ. And then He rescued us from His power. From the power of darkness. And not only did he rescue us, and you see this contrast, don't you, between the light that he speaks about, and the light has this idea of an understanding and an illuminating of things in our presence. See, he had this light that has come, and he has delivered us from that which is darkness. And we all know, and I remember going in the deep caves up in Sagada when I was in, where Mike and I would travel up into the mountains, we would go into these caves. And I remember one time being in the cave, deep, deep in these caves. And these are not caves like here where you go into how caverns and they got lights all over the place. You're going in with lights on your helmets. You're going in with ropes. You're going in and spree-lunking. Is that what they call it? Down into the cave. And we get way down in the middle of this cave. And Mike says to me, I want to do something. And you've, some of you heard this story before. I want to do something right now. I, wanna, I want you to shut off all our lights. I want to have you see what it's like down here where there is no light. Most of the time, wherever we are, we have some light, you know, some reflection that, that gives us light. When you shut it off down there, it is absolute darkness. It is a darkness that can be felt. You remember like the darkness that was talked about in, in Exodus? A darkness that could be felt. There wasn't, and you could hold your hand this close to your face and you could not see anything. In fact, that's what Mike did. When the lights were out, he got real close to me, and I didn't know he was real close to me. And then he flipped on a light, and he was right here. Gave me fright at night. But when he turned on that light, that one little light expelled all the darkness that was around you. You could see everything where that light reached, you could see. He has taken us out of darkness. And how did he do that? By, he, by the power of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that came in and expelled the darkness. Where darkness is and where light is, darkness cannot reside. And so it was that he delivered us. He conveyed us or he delivered us from the power of darkness. And then it says he conveyed us or he translated us, or he moved us from that position where we were, he took us out of that position and placed us in a new position. Taking from one place to another, out of the, out of the darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love. This is a very important doctrine because as we're going to see as we move forward, Everything that happened, you always have to be careful. When it comes to humanity, since the fall encompasses all that God is seeking to do to restore something. And so when you talk about 
taking out of darkness, put, conveying here, when it talks about rescuing you out of the tyranny of darkness, it's all because God has a central purpose in mind for humanity. And then he says he redeemed them by his blood. Right? He redeemed us. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And here, this word for, re for redemption here is that word apolutrosis. So it has this idea of a full and a complete deliverance. The deliverance which he has given to us, and, and redemption, of course, means to buy back by paying a price. You're paying a price and buying something and, and setting something free in this case because you remember from your study of these words, that this is the word that has that little word luo in it. That's the little base word. That's the little root word is that word luo. And that word luo has the idea of setting free from bonds. You're, you're, you have bonds that are connecting you, and luo means it's set free from bonds. A price has been paid. You've been set free from the bonds. Apolutrosis has the idea that you have been fully and completely loosed from the bonds by a price that has been paid. And so we were once in bondage. We were once under the power of the tyranny of his satanic majesty. Christ came in, changed the situation, released us from our bonds, and we will never be bound again by it. He has set us free fully and completely by means of his blood. That's why blood is, I remember an old-time preacher when I was just starting to preach back many, many years ago now. <laughs> I hate to think of how many years ago it was. <laughs> but he came up to me after a message and he said, my, my son, that's what he said. He was one of those old Irish preachers. And he was the same one that used to stand at the back of the door when you were leaving and he'd stick out his hand to you as you are going by. And we as young kids always tried to sneak around him because we knew what he was going to say. He'd come up to me and he'd say, he'd say, are you saved, me boy, are you saved? And if you said, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? How do you know? And you had to give him an explanation. But he said also to me when I was beginning to preach, he said, my son, make much of the blood. Make much of the blood. It is that which redeems. It is that which sets men free. Without the blood of Christ, there is no redemption for sin. There's no cleansing. And in the purpose of God, in the central purpose of God, there must be a cleansing for God to complete the, his purpose for man. His central purpose for mankind. It's all a part of the process. The imagery is powerful. He's taken him from darkness and put him into the kingdom of the son of his love. Isn't that a beautiful statement? The son of his love. And that, again, is critical because what we talk about when we're talking about the son of his love, it, although we, we can look at this, the, the love portion, which we might do in, a, in just a moment, the idea is that this is the eternal son of God on whom the father has always placed his love. It isn't simply that he, that now, in, in time and space history, there was an incarnation and God became flesh and now you had the Son of God. There is the eternal Son of God who always existed. In time, in eternity past. And that's, that's such a strange statement, isn't it? 
eternity past. Because if you say eternity past, all of a sudden you put a time frame on eternity, and eternity has no past. just always has been. And so there always has been the Son of His love on whom He placed all of His love. Understanding some of those things are mind-boggling for us, aren't they? If they're not mind-boggling for you, then you understand far more than I understand about this. It is boggling to my mind to think of eternity and the eternal Son of God dwelling with the eternal Father and the eternal Spirit from time that isn't time. But He is the Son of His love, the Son on whom all His love rests All his love abides. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The son of his love. Now we move. I'm trying to debate on where we want to go. It, It is beautiful. To think about the thoughts of the Father about His Son. Because that's what we do when we sit here around the table on a Sunday morning like we did earlier. We're remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. We're remembering the Son of His love. We're remember, and we, can, we often remember the thoughts that the Father had concerning His own Son. Because you can remember, can't you, as you go back through the Scriptures, uh, all, a lot of the things that have already been fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ at the time in which they were given were eschatological in, in their aspect when they were given. In fact, all of the Scripture is kind of eschatological in the sense that it's all looking forward. It's all looking to something that will be, will happen, and yet some of it already has taken place, and we have prophecy that has been made more sure because we have some of it that has been fulfilled in its totality in the coming of the Son of God, but we have so much more that's coming, right? So much more that lies ahead of us in this central purpose of God for humanity. There is yet more in His purpose, more in His desire, the Son of His love. The one whom he, he pours out his love. Can you imagine, and I suppose we can't, the infinite nature of the love of God for his son? Can you imagine? I suppose, like I've often said re- regarding omniscience, I've said that only omniscience can understand what omniscience is. Right? I mean, you can understand and give a definition, but really, to really understand omniscience, you have to be omniscient. And that's why, like, sometimes when you go into Romans 8, which we may do next week, if you get into Romans 8 and you get into that section where verse 29 finds itself, there's that idea of foreknowledge in God. And sometimes I think foreknowledge in God means a whole lot more than we understand that it means. Because only omniscience can understand what omniscience is. What is foreknowledge in God? It cannot be limited. How can you limit what God knows? But anyway, we're getting off track, aren't we? But only the love of God, only the infinite love of God can understand what infinite love is. Yet he gave his son. 
the son of his love, the one on whom all his love rests. He gave for the likes of you and I. Can we imagine such a thing? Can we imagine such a thing? But it's all part of the central purpose of God for humanity. Let me just say another thing in passing because we're running out of time and we need to move on. When we talk about agape love or agapeo love, however you want to, whatever form you want to take, we'll say agape love. When you talk about agape love, oftentimes I think we have a misunderstanding of what agape love is. You know, agape love was the most common word for love that is used in the New Testament. It was a common word for love that was used during the time which Christ was on earth and during the time of the, of the apostles. It used to be phileo was the most common form <laughs> that was used for love. And, and again, we recognize that God also uses that form of love when he speaks of his son. He uses the word phileo. But the father loves the son, phileo. He loves the son, and so he's using that word phileo. So don't ever think that phileo somehow is a lesser kind of love. What happened was, what, what, how far do we want to go with this? What happened was that this phileo love began to be used in ways that were part of philosophies and part of the uh, philosophies of men. And so this love began to be misused. And so they chose another word, agapeo, that became the most common word to use regarding love. Oftentimes we talk about agape love as being a, a love that's void of emotion. Get that notion out of your head. Do you not think that when God expresses his love to you and when God expresses his love to his son that there's not some passion involved in it? We recognize that that also the agape love can be a choice. We recognize that. It can be a choice that is made. But in that choice, there is passion and emotion that accompanies it. Sometimes it's commanded, isn't it? Husbands, love your wives. But far more often, it's not an imperative mood verb. It's a subjunctive. Where it's the idea of, well, even when in John chapter 13 and John chapter 15, when he talks about love one another, it's a subjunctive. This may or may not happen depending on whether certain conditions are fulfilled or maybe the result cause of what you do. But this is what you need to be doing, love one another. Anyway, you can put that in the back of your mind and save it for another time when you can impress no one. I'm trying to see. Let's move forward to, to what I really want to get to this morning. Uh, I believe that every plank that I'm laying in this front porch is important for what we will go forward with next week. We get to the crux of the issue here. The central purpose for, of, of God for mankind when we read the phrase concerning him the Lord Jesus Christ, as being the image of the invisible God. There it is. That's that major doctrine that we're going to look at. He is the image of the invisible God. What does the image of God mean? What is the image of God? Now, if we, if we say that the image of God in man, because we are made 
according to the image of God. And we'll look at, at that a little bit more next week. But if we're made in the image of God, what, do, what does that mean? Does that mean that man possesses God's attributes? And so when you see a person, he, he's possessing or he has attributes that God has, and therefore he's in the image of God. And we might say things like intellect, sensibility, and will are parts of what man has as being in the image of God. He has the attributes that God has. God has intellect. And God's intellect is called omniscience. But we have intellect as well, don't we? We have sensibility. What is sensibility? Sensibility is simply emotions. We have emotion. Do you have emotions? I sure hope you have emotions. Because if you're not, you're not going to be a very pleasant person to be around. We all have emotion. Does God have emotion? He absolutely does. Will. Does God have will? His will is called omnipotence. Because whatever he wills, he can do. So, Man has intellect, sensibility, and will. So we have these attributes that God possesses. Is that what it means to be in the, will, to be in the image of God? To have knowledge? To have these kind of wisdom? Now, if we say that, we run into a problem right away, don't we? You know what that problem is, don't you? The problem is, is if you now possess more of those qualities than someone else, you can say that person's less the image of God than I am. You see, I'm, I'm far more uh, intellectual than that individual, so I, I must be in the image of God in a greater sense than he is. The Scripture never indicates there's a lesser or greater degree of the image of God in man. You know Why? Because the image of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that image does not change. And we'll look at this again next week as well. So I don't want to go too far ahead in that thought, but that's the, that's the truth, is that he is called the image of the invisible God. And we'll see that next week when we look into Hebrews as well. He is the image. And now you look back at some of the things we were talking about before, that before time began, God had a son that he loved and then he created man in the image of his son. Now think about that for a moment. And I, you know, sometimes I get confused. Oftentimes I get confused. You just ask my wife. But I'm, I'm trying to think of what I have coming up in the next week's message. And so I don't want to step on my own toes. But think about that. God's design God's purpose when he made man in his own image was to have a world that was populated with those who reflected his own son. That was his desire. To have a world in which humanity was a reflection of his own son who is the image of God. Went, went kind of silent in here. But I th we'll look at that a little bit more next week. We'll see that idea some more. But we recognize that in Scripture, a great deal has been written. 
I shouldn't say in Scripture. I should say man has written over many years volumes upon volumes upon volumes of works concerning the image of God. And this was in times past. In the present time, we don't hear it too often anymore. But going back to that previous thought, if we take now, for example, that certain attributes that man possesses is what makes us in the, act, in, in the image of God, then we run into problems. As I said, this one's not as good as I am. And so, therefore, we can put him in subjection. This is where the ideas of Arianism rises because now you have someone who's saying, listen, we are the elite we are those who possess all of this knowledge. Those other ones over there, they're subhuman. Because they don't have a proper understanding of what being made in the image of God is. I possess more intellect. I possess more um, sensibility. I possess more will. I possess more Kindness, I possess more, and these are attributes which I possess, and they don't, they're uncivilized, and therefore we can suppress them. Happened in history many, many times. I can enslave those people because they're not in the image of God. They're in the image of Cain, or they're in some other image, they're subhuman, so therefore I can enslave them because I am greater. Does this make sense? If you're thinking this through with me, and later on you can correct all of my inconsistencies, but I think we find that it is true. Yet, where man had an understanding of the image of God and who God's image represented or what that image represented, it was used for great good, wasn't it? Because man recognizes that human beings are made in the image of God, or according to the image as we'll see next week, if you see man as being in the image of God, that gives every man, every human being, every unborn child dignity and honor. They're made in the image of God. And that spurs missionary outreaches. That spurs the doing away in, whether, of infanticide like it used to be in, in days gone by where a child would be placed outside in the cold into the weather to just perish and others would come along and say who saw, who saw the value in each human life as being created in the image of God, scooping them up and caring for them. We have today in our culture what is called a nihilism. The only word that comes to mind. It's the idea that, it's the idea that the the standards that have been set in society have been set under fraudulent basis. the The standards that are set for morality are not standards that we must always follow. Morality changes, and therefore the standard changes, and therefore my life itself is is meaningless, and I can do whatever I want with my life. Now, is that what the Scripture teaches? No, it does not. It does set down a morality, an absolute morality, because nihilism also says that because there's no, there's no standard, 
then I can change and I can do whatever I want to do. And when you change this, and you take away morality as the Word of God lays it down, humanity tanks. And we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen. In our day and age, it would be the abortion issue. And we would say to ourselves that any thinking human being who recognizes that in this child within the womb there is the image of God we must save it preserve it but if you have an attitude where morality does not matter I can do whatever I want it's my body I can destroy that life if I choose to destroy that life you see what a difference in understanding the, the image of God? How it can shift the way in which you think? When you put away God, as our school systems have done, as our nation has done, as you push God out, morality will tank. And we're end, we end up with what we have. We end up with what we have. No Absolute truths. That's another part about nihilism. There's no absolute truth. It's relative truth. Relative truth. Try using relative truth in physics. Doesn't work so well. Because there are laws and there are truths and there are realities that do not change. Think through, think through the, think through the Old Testament. We may touch on this again next week. Think through the Old Testament from the time of the fall. We're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at those portions in Genesis because it is a really good place to start to try and understand the whole concept. But think through from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? But see all that God has done. And when you think about it in light of his desire to now renew the image of his son, it makes a lot of sense. For even when you get to the law, which was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, we see in the law a standard in the Decalogue. We just use the Decalogue for an example. We see in the Decalogue a standard that God has set. And who can, be, who can meet the standard? Who in this room has ever met the standard? All has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can meet the standard. But look at the standard. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make any other image. Why is that so important? Because the image that I desire of you is the image of my son. You are not to make any other image and then try to conform yourself to something other than what I have designed you to be. And so all the images that show up throughout, they change the glory of the incorruptible God into images like unto Man, four-footed beasts and creeping things. They change the image. They change the image. And God would not have it. Talk about in the, in the Decalogue, what does it mean 
to be faithful. Do not covet another's things. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Fidelity. Is there fidelity in God? Is there fidelity in Christ? Absolutely. Do not lie. <laughs> does God always tell the truth? Does, he, does God ever lie? He's not like man that he should lie. He doesn't. That standard is the standard that his son only could fulfill. Did his son keep the law? Was his son perfect in every way? He is the image of the invisible God, the standard that God wants mankind to be. The standard that he wants us to become and to be. What is image when we speak about it in terms of man? And how has sin destroyed that? Here's a very important question, and you can mull this over over the week. I think you already know the answer, but I'll, I'll let you mull it over anyway. Very often it has been taught, if you go back and read, read the literature from years gone by, very often it has been taught that when sin entered in, the image of God was devastated. Or... When sin entered in, it destroyed man. I would, I would go with the latter, wouldn't you? The image of God didn't change. But sin came in and did some, can I use the word, irreparable damage? Yeah. Because you see, when Christ came, he didn't take you into a reform school and make the old man better. He had to put it to death and give you a new life in Christ. We'll stop there. Great place to stop, isn't it? So what is the image of God? What is the image of God? We're going to spend some time next week looking at that. And I'm scooting over all my notes saying, oh, boy, missed all this, missed all that, missed all this. So we may incorporate some of that into our time next week as well. But think it over. What is the image of God? And how are we in the image of God? Father, we give you thanks for all that you have done. You are a magnificent God. And you have done magnificent things. And we are thankful that we, now because of what your Son has done, have a part in what your design and purpose has been. Thank you, Lord. We recognize it's not because of any good that we have done. It's not because we are better than anyone else. It's simply because the blood of your Son cleansed us from all sin. And we're thankful, Father, that we can be part of a new humanity. And so we give ourselves to Thee and ask that our lives might be a reflection of Thyself. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.